The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. We're back in the marvelous chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to be looking over the properties. We studied the pattern of love. We looked at the priority of love, and now we're starting to look at the properties or the characteristics, and there's 15 of them, and we looked at the first three last Sunday, and we're going to continue through through it. And I want to say again, there's nothing here new that you haven't probably have not heard before. Uh, You probably heard lots of sermons on love. You probably heard lots of sermons on Corinthians 13. Uh, But what's important is Paul is saying, here's love. And here's where you are, Corinthians. So important for us to look at what the Word of God says, here's love, and then honestly compare ourselves to it and say, this is me or this is not me. So it's important that we're honest and have the integrity to evaluate our own selves against these characteristics because this is what biblical love is. So I want us to all to do that because love, folks, is the foundation of everything that a Christian does. Love needs to be the foundation of anything that we do as a church. And when you look at these, no matter how long you've been a Christian, I think, or went to church, or how many sermons on love you heard, when you start comparing yourselves honestly, <laughs> you're going to find out you got a lot of things to work on, right? Um, last week, I had to go to the doctor. Now, these days when I go to the doctor, that's like, for me, like, that's like going out, you know? You like get all dressed up, you're actually leaving the house, and, and it was a sunny day, and I decided to treat myself and go to Starbucks, get some coffee on the way home, right? There's a new Starbucks on Maxtown. Well, I got there, the line was so long, the drive through line. So I thought, I'm going to be smarter than everybody else, I'm going to go in. So I park my car, I go in, and there's only one lady in front of me, brilliant, but genius. And she's on the phone, and then she starts putting her order in. You know, she has a ingredients that are a mile long. I want some coconut milk with skim milk, and this milk has to be this degrees and so forth. And you're standing behind there, and she's, you know, the lady at the register getting all confused what she wants in her drink. And I'm standing there like, okay. And then the lady she's talking to on the phone, she says, do you want anything? (laughs) Where her list of ingredients is only a half a mile long. And by the time she's putting this order on, I see the car that I would have been behind (laughs) pulling up to the drive-thru window, getting their order and pulling away. And, you know, you hear those, you ever been to Starbucks, you hear that steam, like that tea kettle, that's what about was happening to me, and all of a sudden, my wife's face pops up like, Phew. love is patient, love is kind, practice what you preach. So then I get to my order, I tell I just want a white mocha, and the lady's still standing there, she's like, maybe I should have wanted to let you go, go first. And then Frank Constanza pops up, you guys know Frank Constanza from Seinfeld? Serenity now. But then I get in my car and say, well, what was I getting so upset about? But when you really compare yourself, anybody else have a patience issue, right? So love, true love, is not easy. And, you know, there was a poll done, and they were asking the question, what are you looking for most in life? And, you know, to their surprise, one of the things that thought there was going to be more materialistic things that people would put down, but number one was, top of the list was love. Love. But the question in the world is, what is love? Do we have a good understanding of it? And you know, a lot of people are looking for culture to define or to understand what love is. And if you do that, you're going to be very disappointed. I mean, if you're looking to Hollywood, people to have a lasting, long relationship, you're going to be very disappointed. And some people will probably be confused. 
And last Sunday I mentioned there's been lots of poems, lots of songs, everything about love, right? So I Googled some songs about love when I was on a Zoom call on work, you know, one of those boring calls and you have a little side thing open. I just Googled some songs and I want to share them with you. So because I kind of started arranging them around. So what do we learn from popular music about love? You ever heard of the song, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love? That's establishing that everyone is looking for it, right? Then Foreigner saying, I want to know what love is. You guys heard that song? And don't forget the, about the yummy, yummy in my tummy. I got love in my tummy. That's actually by Ohio Express. So what's love according to these songs? You know, there's one song that says, love is many splendor thing. Another, thing, uh, another song says, love is the answer. Led Zeppelin sang a whole lot of love, right? Meatloaf. Do anything for love. Phil Collins warned us, you can't hurry love. And we wonder why. Why can't you hurry your love? Well, there's another song called This Is The Way Love Goes. So put it all together. We need love in our tummy because love is the answer. Love is many splendored. We need a whole lot of love. You can't hurry it because that's the way it goes. And then somebody had to throw us all off. That's Michael Bolton. Remember that song that said, I loved you but I lied? And Beatles famously sang, all you need is love, but yet, when they broke up, they all sued each other. So it gets confusing what true love is. And Apostle Paul here is pointing out to the Corinthians and to us what love is. We saw last time that love is something that you can't really define philosophically, or it's something that you can't describe as an idea. It only describes itself in actions. You don't define love, you describe it in action. And, you know, uh, and he shines love, like I mentioned last Sunday, through a prism. And then all these colors come out. 15 things that he puts down here for us. 15 properties or characteristics of love. And last Sunday we looked at it that love suffers long. Totally, it, love is patient with people, it doesn't have a spirit of retaliation. It's totally forgiven. Secondly, we talked about that love is kind. It's literally translation as it's useful. Love is useful. In other words, love uses itself to help others. It's kindness. And we learned that love does not envy. And we said two things about envy. There's, you know, something that envy is that we wish we had something other people did. We get jealous. But then you wish you had it, but they didn't have it. That's the resentment. And we're going to come to fourthly today, to the fourth property or quality or characteristic. And if you look at 1 Corinthians verses 4 and 5, it says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoke. Thinks no evil. So in verse 4, it says, love suffers long, is kind, love does not envy, love does not parade itself. Love does not parade itself. And we live in the culture in which image is everything. You know, we have to look out for number one. You have to learn to how to blow your own horn. Sometimes you have to beat your own drum and things like that. And, and love is not boastful. That's what it says here. Now, it's followed by another statement. It says it's not puffed up. It may sound that it's like the same thing. It's a parallel, but they're not the same thing. The first statement represents verbalizing it, where, you know, you verbalize it, actual speech of pride. The second is the attitude of pride, conceited that's, conceit that's down inside. So love is not boastful. literally comes from the word that a root word that is a windbag. Everybody know what windbag is? Love is not a windbag. 
Love is not always shooting off its mouth of its own accomplishments and things like that. Uh, and love does not speak in arrogant, basement chatter where it's trying to design to make me look better than you. You know, if you really look at verse 4, how it's outlined, it says, love does not envy, and then it says, love does not parade itself. Envy is wanting something that other people have. Bragging is making people want something that you have. It's really the other side of jealousy. Jealousy is wanting something that else has. Bragging is to make others jealous of what you have. You're happy you have it, but you're not just happy you have it. You want everybody to know that you have it. You know, when I moved to America and went to middle school, there's certain, I don't know if it was the style back then, but if you wore certain clothing, you know, you left tags on it. You guys remember that? That wearing a cap, everybody wants to see the designer label, so you want other people to notice it. Oh, I didn't notice that was the whatever label. Oh, really? You didn't notice? That's People want to show off, you know, and you ever get a gift and people leave a price tag on it? Sometimes it's not a good thing. It shows how cheap they are, but, but it's bragging. It's making somebody feel, you know, making yourself feel superior to them. It's looking in the mirror and singing how great they are. That's what that does. And remember, one of the people that... We all know had his cocky wit as Muhammad Ali. Remember his quick sayings? I float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. And he said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. And one day finally arrived when he was in an airplane and the flight attendant told him to buckle up his seatbelt. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said, well, Superman don't need an airplane either. Its word describes as someone always promoting themselves. He or she wants to be recognized at all times. And a good example in the Bible is Diotrephes. If he was self-seeking troublemaker, of whom John said in Third John of, uh, verse nine, it says, "I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have what preeminence, he wants to have superiority. He doesn't want other people coming in. He wants to be the he wants to be the show, and that's what." Opposite of love is. Because love says, I want you to feel superior, and I'll take the role of a servant. Love never blows its own horn. In Galatians 5.26, we read, let us not be, become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And the Living Bible, which is a paraphrase, puts it this way, which is kind of easier to understand. Then we don't need to look for honors and popularity. Why? which lead to jealousy and hard feelings. We don't need to promote ourselves. Don't brag. You know, it's not the whistle that hauls the train. And remember last Sunday we talked about the Pharisees did this a lot. And in uh, Matthew 6, 2, when you do, they do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before it is the hypocrites do in synagogues. When someone who is constantly speaking of their abilities, attainments, and always promoting themselves, they in the spotlight need to remember the word of Jesus. He said in John 7, 18, who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. And he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. And honestly, nobody really likes to be around those kind of people. If either you wish you were leaving or they left, we don't want to fellowship with those kind of people because they think they're the... Greatest thing that ever happened to the world. The world should thank them that they were born. You know, if they weren't around, the world wouldn't spin. In Romans 12, 3, and we talked about this before, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. We need to think soberly of who we are. Because genuine humility is not thinking also lowly of yourself. I said that before. Real humility is understanding what you are in Christ and therefore being free to serve other people, serve one another. It all begins with an honest evaluation, thinking rightly of yourself. Because in the end, no matter how talented you are, how beautiful you are, fortunate you might be, we're all fallen, desperate people. 
We're mortal. We all make mistakes. And we're all in need of God's grace. And the Corinthian problem was they were all spiritual, spiritual show-offs. Their tongue speaking was counterfeit, but their bragging, bragging was genuine. They were bragging about it. Everyone was competing amongst each other there for ruleship. And, you know, if you read the whole book, you don't really find anything that says anything to an elder or a leader because there wasn't really one there. They were all kind of doing their thing. They are all seeking their own uh, advancement. There's no real concern for the unity in the church. They were more concerned about having themselves on display. They cared nothing for harmony, order, fellowship, edification, and anything else that was worthwhile. And Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26, he says, How is it, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let these things be done in edification. He says, when you guys meet together, when you come together, everybody has a psalm, everybody has a doctrine, everybody has a tongue, everybody has revelation, everybody has interpretation. He says, what kind of chaos is that? In the morning, everybody who had a gift gets up here when I'm talking. Imagine Mike preaching and then Scott's preaching at the same time. And while we're preaching, somebody else comes up and says, I'm going to sing a solo. They start singing a solo. And all this stuff is going on. And he says, when somebody else walks in, what are they, they going to think? Everybody's showing off. If an unbeliever walked in, he's going to say, you guys are really nuts. <laughs> and probably going to be right. Because everyone was showing off. So there was bragging, constantly competing for public attention. And folks, boasting really is just geared to hurt other people. Think about it. If you think about it, it's geared to wound somebody else. It's geared to make you stand out and make them look inferior, and it's easy to do. It's easy to do. But if you look at the pattern of Jesus Christ, if anybody had to, anything to brag about, it was Jesus. And if you study the book of John, where the Gospel of John presents his deity, how many times he backs away from almost like disclaiming anything Listen to what he says in John 12, 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. How many of us can say that? When we come to the end of day, we say, God, I haven't spoken of myself. Because love does not parade itself. And love, folks, does not brag about love. And what I mean by that, how many of you say to your loved one or something, somebody else, do you know how much I do for you? My wife says that all the time. Do you know how hard I work for you? Do you know the sacrifices we make for you? Folks, if you serve for the approval of men, you're going to miss out on the approval of God. And if Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3 says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. But the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighted. And folks, there's also a health hazard on bragging too much, right? You can dislocate your shoulder by patting you on your... A lot of people just patting them on the cells all the time. So that's why I'm thankful for my wife. She tells me all the time, you're not that great. And the person who has the right to boast, a right to brag... The Bible tells us he doesn't really have to. Proverbs 2.27.2 says, Let another man praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. So only love saves us, folks, from flaunting our knowledge, flaunting our ability or education or gifts. And really, when we do that, we just come off as fools. Because... Paul says, you're nothing, you're zero, even if you have all those gifts. Why? Because love is absent. And then now behind boasting, it says love is not puffed up. If you looked at verse 4 again, it does not parade itself, it does not puffed up. So you're going now deeper than your mouth. You're, you, you got that bracken, the hot air shooting off the mouth, and 
Paul says, you're puffed up. And when he says that, he really says, you have no love at all when he says that to the Corinthians because they themselves were spiritual hotshots. They think they arrived. You, see, you know, they felt that they're that way about their doctrine. Remember I told you they had the right doctrine and so forth. They, they felt themselves, they had all the answers. And in 1 Corinthians 4.18, he writes to them says, Now some are so puffed up as though I were not coming to you. What they were saying is, why would Paul even come here? Why would Paul come here, Corinthians? We've got it all. We know everything. What's he going to come and tell us? So they have that attitude. You know, they're saying we had Apollos, we had Cephas, we had all these other teachers. Why do we need Paul to come here? He's never going to show up around here. They were puffed up in their knowledge. They had this attitude that they were higher than everybody else. They were so wrong because they thought they were so high and mighty in their spiritual state. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 6. It says, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively is transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. So he's saying, I'm using myself and Apollos as examples to illustrate what he's been saying. You can't have favorites in the church. You must not be proud of God's teachers more than the other. So, you know, they were taking pride. One, I know more than you that we had this teacher, we had that. And Paul's saying, you better take biblical evaluation of yourself and stop being puffed up. As one great philosopher said, his name is Mike Tyson, you think you're all that until somebody comes along and punches you in the face. And what Paul is going to do, he's going to kind of punch him in the face here. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, For who makes you differ from another? And what you have, what you do have, that you did not receive. Now, if you indeed, indeed received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? See, why are you all puffed up? If what you have, God hasn't given it to you, if it came from God, then why are you acting so great, as though you accomplished it on your own. So he's using a little sarcasm, and he goes down to verse 8, and he says, you are already full. You are already rich. You will have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. He said, you pretty much have all the spiritual food you need. You're full. There's nothing else that can go in there. You're already Kings, you're richly in, on your thrones, and you're leaving Apostle Paul and all the apostles behind. Your guys are hot stuff. And then he moves down to verse 9, for, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles last, as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and men. So he's thinking, apostles, God put them already at the very end of the line. Like prisoners, we're last, you're big shots. And he goes to verse 10, it says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're distinguished, but we are dishonored. So they're bragging their attitude of their spiritual state. They had their correct doctrine and all this stuff. They were so puffed up. But the problem is, they weren't living it out. They weren't. Look at, this is the punch in the face. 1 Corinthians 5, first two verses. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. So you, it's not, you got stuff going on in your church that even the Gentiles would be like, whoa. That a man has his father's wife. And then he moves on to verse 2, says, And you are puffed up? You're proud? You have not rather mourned? That he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. They approved it. It was okay to be those kind of people in that church. 
Why are those people still in your congregation? Where is there no church discipline? Why isn't there any kind of, why aren't you following your doctrine? And also in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says, now concerning things offered to idols. So there were some idol things going on. We know that we have all knowledge, and knowledge puffed up, but love edifies. So they were puffed up in their biblical knowledge. So we can be puffed up in our everyday life. It doesn't have to be biblical knowledge. They were puffed up about their spiritual status. They were puffed up about certain teachers that they followed. They were egotistical. They, were, they had egos. And folks, it's not just one or two people. They had the whole congregation among them. Can you imagine? Somebody said empty trucks makes the most noise. Uh, you know, sometimes we get people in church one or two that cause such friction, but you have a whole congregation of them? It says, I'm better than you. But love is opposite of that, isn't it? Conceit says, I want everybody to know all about me. Love says, I wish I could know all about you. You know, there was a, I don't know if you heard of a great missionary, his name is William Carey, and he translated the Bible into about 34 languages. And he spent most of his time in India, and he was invited to a dinner. And at this dinner, there was lots of influential people and rich people. And, you know, William Carey was a uh, shoe repairman. And they decided to make fun of him, and somebody said, Hey, William, I heard you sold shoes. And he said, No, 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 I don't sell shoes. I repair them. He didn't even think so much of being a shoe salesman. He's just a shoe repairman. He wouldn't claim he made shoes he only repaired them. And you know, Bible tells us so much about this pride and this attitude and being puffed up. I'm going to read you some verses of, you know, from my second favorite book, Proverbs. Proverbs 8.13 says, Fear the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverse mouth. I hate. Lord hates it when we're all puffed up. In Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes... Then comes what? Shame. Folks, we have so many living examples, we don't even need to go to the Bible. When people get so pried up, it only follows by shame. And out of pride, there's nothing but strive. In Proverbs 13.10, it says, all pride ever does is breathe contention. All it does is start fights. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. Everybody was fighting for each other. Have you ever heard of humility starting a fight? Humility never started a fight. And in Proverbs 16, 18, I'm sure you heard this, pride goes before destruction. And exploiting that proud people, the most ignorant of all, their pride, their smugness. And when people get so prideful, what they don't understand is what awaits them. What awaits them? You know, one example is... King Hezekiah. And he was a good king, for example, for, for the most part. And he got sick. Hezekiah was sick, and the king of Babylon when heard that he's getting well in 2 Kings 20, verse 12. says, King of Babylon sent letters to and present to Hezekiah, for he had heard Hezekiah had been sick. So we have a king that's hit, that's sick. And, and here's Babylon. He's going to send some people over there to visit the king. The king's getting healthier. So we all know who Babylon was, you know, God's hammer. They were the evil, wicked empire. Um, and they showed it off. Talk about proud people. They were proud. They had great cities. They built great palaces. I think they had a couple of uh, Trump Towers there in Babylon. Everything was over the top had to be made out of gold and so forth. And, you know, they come and visit Hezekiah. And he knows who these people are. So he thinks, you know what? I got stuff too. And look at verse 13. And Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the spices and the precious ointment, and all his armory, 
All that was found among his treasures, there was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Any any of you do that when you get guests guests come over? You're like, hey, check out my bank account. Check out what we got. Let me show you what I got in the garage. Anybody do that? Well, for some reason, he felt that he needed to do that. You know. And then we continue reading in verse 14 through 17. Then Isaiah, the prophet, went to the king, Hezekiah, and said to him, what did this men say and where did they come from? Who are these people that showed up? Said, oh, they came from a far country, from Babylon. And Isaiah says, what have they seen in your house? He says, they've seen all in my house. There is nothing among my treasures I have not shown them. Remember the great philosopher Mike Tyson? Here's the punch in the face. Verse 16, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. You see, proud people, they don't think what's going to happen to them in the end. It's a warning. And Hezekiah paraded his wealth. But Proverbs also says, man's pride will bring him low. Proverbs 29, 23. Man's pride will bring him low. You're so puffed up with your own false sense of self-importance. And he's telling Corinthians, Paul, he says, you know nothing about biblical love. And if we got anything to be proudful about or anything to be, uh, you know, parading about, it's what it says in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man, he doesn't say let the weak man, even if you're mighty, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Saying this is the rich people. Well, don't glory in your riches. You may be rich, that's fine. But then in verse 24 says, But let him he glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these days I delight, saith the Lord. Glory in God. If you're a Christian especially, boast how great God is. You know, when Jesus began to preach, he kind of overshadowed the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been a hero. He's been a great prophet. He's been out there in the wilderness. A lot of people are coming, getting baptized and so forth. But the day comes, and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. And he says this in John 3.30. I'm pretty sure you guys know all this. He must increase. I must decrease. And the sooner we understand that, and the sooner John the Baptist says here, the sooner I forget about myself, the better off you'll be. You see, our hope is love. And the only hope for Corinthians is, is love. Love is that is superior to eloquence, spiritual insight, knowledge, faith, charity. We talked about all these things. Love that suffers long is kind. Love is the only power in the world that can save us from this stupid swagger of boastfulness. Love never shows off. Jesus, like I said before, had plenty, plenty. To show off, right? Plenty. Doing all kinds of miracles. Walking on water. But because he loved us, the life of Jesus was the agape love. Look how much he loved us. Remember we talked about he knew who he was, he knew where he was going and so forth. In Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, but who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And I kind of used this example before. If I was God and ants are the people, I'm going to take a likeness of an ant because I love it so much to save it. Who would do that? 
And he humbled himself in verse 8 and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. So it's not boastful. It's not puffed up. And sixth, it's not rude. In verse 5, it says, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. You guys thinking of Aretha Franklin? Because we talked about some song. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. No? That's what it's talking about here, behaving rudely. You know, I kind of found a poem this morning, and it's called Before and After. (laughs) And it says this, two lovers walking down the street, she trips he murmurs, careful, sweet. Now wed, they tread that self, same street. She trips, he growls, pick up your feet. Manners are just love in the little things, even marriage. Now I'm going to get in trouble here soon. You know, remember when you were dating your wife, you were head over heels for her? You open the door, the car door, and so forth. Who did that? Now, if you see anybody open the door, it's either he got a new car or a new wife, right? Well, what's, why is that? You know, you go to dinner, you, you're sitting there, and you accidentally hit her under the table to feed, or she hits you. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, are you okay? Now you're like, get your number 14s out of my way. Like, what, 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 Why? Because love says, I'm sorry, you could say that. I forgive. You know, when I was a kid in Uzbekistan, we had to take public transportation everywhere. And to go to church, we had to literally take five buses. And when I say five buses, this is not Dakota bus. This is the Borat bus where you have chickens, goats, and I'm not over-exaggerating. Sometimes you have the whole zoo on there. But one thing my parents would do all the time, especially dad, if there was an older person standing up and you were sitting you're going to get slapped around. And he would always quote Leviticus 19.32, you shall rise before a gray-headed, <laughs> gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, for I am your Lord. Teaching you that rudeness. Get up. They're going to take a seat. When you see manners and rudeness is saying this, I don't love you because I could care less what affects you. I will do what I want whenever you like it or not. Anybody's mom tell them not to slurp their soup? Huh? Mine used to lie to me because she said it would dirty up my clothes until I had to eat somebody who slurped their soup. And they'll remain nameless. But I didn't like my soup so much as much as that person did when they were enjoying it so much. So I figured out it had nothing to do with getting your clothes dirty. Is just manners. It just matters. It's the little things. Your happiness matters to me. I want to do what makes you happy. It's that undisciplined behavior. Rude, dismissive, disrespectful behavior, folks, is a sign of lostness or carnality. If you constantly are rude, if you're constantly doing things like that, it's, you know, I'm going to be kind of blunt. That's because you don't know Jesus Christ. You'll never be rude. If someone you know dismissive, bad-mannered, because you're operating in the flesh, you're not operating in the spirit. And this couldn't be a better definition of the Corinthians we're studying. They were rude. Example, they would come to the love feasts. They would eat all the food before even body got there, before they even had it. You know, it's like you're bringing your food for potluck. You're eating it all up before you even get here. Then you go into the kitchen eating somebody else's food. Their behavior during the Lord's Supper was bad. They all got drunk. They kept passing the cup around. Everybody shouting, everybody talking, everybody trying to do, have the first place. Nobody's considering the others. And folks, when pastors or churchgoers have no concern or respect for each other, not only causes chaos in the church, but the church loses the sight of their God-given mission, their purpose. And what happens is when that happens, the gospel, which is supposed to be in the front of the church, takes the back seat to personal preferences. And as a result, when people come into church, they don't see the gospel at all. They don't. Why? Because there's no love there. 
Love is never rude. Love is not always, you know, it, it cares about how it affects somebody else. And Jesus, again, a great example of this. There's a story that I want to read with you in Luke 7, in verses 36 through 38. It's a beautiful one of those situations when the Lord protected a lady from rudeness. And it says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. So Jesus got invited to dinner. So he's going over to this Pharisee's house. His name is Simon. And verse 37, And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought alabaster, flask, and fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. I'll tell you, this is a beautiful thing because it says a sinner because she was a prostitute. She was weeping. She was wiping Jesus' feet with putting ointment on them. Do you remember we talked about the pattern of love where Jesus washed the disciples' feet? So she's kind of doing the same thing. And look what happens in verse 39 through 50. Now when the Pharisee had invited him, saw this, he spoke to him saying, This man, if he were a prophet, you would know what a matter of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. God, if he's so holy, if you're a prophet, you let her touch you. And Jesus answered to him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor and had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 150. And the one that had nothing to which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. For she loved much. But whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There's lots of things that this story is teaching us. But one of the things that's showing us is a very simple thing. Here's a woman who entered a Pharisee's home, and the first response of the Pharisee would have been rude. Rudeness behavior would have been arrogant. To scorn the woman, how, how sinful she is. She's filthy. She's a sinning woman. Get out. And Jesus shielded that woman from that scorn. The indifference of a Pharisee. But Jesus loved the woman. And Jesus forgave the woman. Jesus redeemed the woman. You see, love does not behave graceless, gracelessly. Love is gracious. Love is never rude. You know, one of the things I believe that Christians, Christianity very often has to pay a price for is just plain rudeness to the unbelieving people. You know that? We need to look at that. We need to kind of evaluate that. Because somebody's living in sin or something, we don't try to lift them up, try to build them up. We try to do what the Pharisees did. She's a sinful woman. Get out of my house. We're just often rude, thoughtless people. And I experienced this with my own eyes when certain pastors were so rude and disrespectful to unbelievers that showed up at their church. They were saying, how can you show up dressed like that to church or so forth, instead of just rejoicing that the person came to church and those are secondary things that you can work on. You know, sometimes we want people to act and look Christian before they even are Christian, before they're even converted. To the unbelieving world, there's only one message. 
For God so loved the world. He died for you. Understanding that they're a sinner. Then comes everything else. Love is never rude. You know, there was an inscription in a small village in England in the cemetery. And on one of these tombstones, it's inscribed these words. It says, here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathered, gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. Sad. And I was thinking, well, like, would I like that on my tombstone? Who cares? The person lived for themselves. That's all they care about. They're rude. But how great is to say when you leave this world... This person was always thinking for others. He was caring for others. And we need to show respect for all. And I mean all. Because, you know why? Because God made everyone. Do you believe that? Well, look what it says in Psalm 8, 5. For you have made him little lower than the angels, is speaking of mankind. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Mankind was the crowning part of of God's creation. We may not like the person's lifestyle. You may not like the way they dress. You may not like the style of their hair. You may not like lots of things, but you don't have to like the person to love the person. Remember that? My wife reminded me that the other day. We need to show respect for all people, not only because he made everyone. I'll give you another reason. And that's in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold for your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. Not only because God made everyone. God died for them. God loved us so much that his only begotten son, he sacrificed and shed his blood. And if you want to know what God thinks of the lowest form of human or humanity, just look at Calvary. Because Jesus didn't die just for you. He didn't die just for me. He died for the person who's unlovely. He died for the person who behaves rudely. He died for the person that may be an irritation to you. Jesus died for them. So love does not behave rudely. And number seven, it does not seek its own. In verse 5, it says, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, thinks no evil. And you know, this is probably one of the keys to everything because a lot of people live a cafeteria lifestyle, self-service. But Philippians 2.21, Paul reminds us, for all seek their own, not the things which are in Christ Jesus. Love does not seek its own. It's talking about selfishness here. Love isn't interested in its own things. Love is interested in the things of someone else. And think if we cured selfishness in this world. What if there was no selfishness in this world? One theologian said, if there was no selfishness in the world, we just replanted the Garden of Eden. And I think he may be right. In Corinthians, they were so selfish. They were selfish, folks, in their spiritual gifts, too. What God has given Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 14.4. He who speaks in tongues edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. And then in verse 12, he says, even so, so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, what does he say were all these spiritual gifts you're so zealous for, you speaking in tongues and so forth? Let it be for edification of the church that you seek to excel. The gifts are not for you. They're not for your enjoyment, they're for your employment. Let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel, not yourself. Even in spiritual gifts, something that God gave them that was good, they twisted around and made it a selfish thing. But love is free from that. Love is not selfish of the things you have. It does not pursue its own interest. Do you guys remember when Abraham and Lot separated ways because they're herdsmen? Cattle began to multiply and so forth. And Abraham said, let's separate ways. Do you remember Abraham was so, had so much wisdom that he actually said, like, hey, Lot, I'll let you have the first choice. Choose whatever you want. But do you know what Lot was choosing 
was really Abraham's land. It was Abraham's to begin with. Look at Genesis 13, 14 through 17. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look for the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, as men could not number dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through, the, through, through its length and its width, I give to you. All of that belonged to Abraham. But yet he didn't say, hey, this is my land. Okay, Lot, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you over there because I want to have this. He didn't seek his own interest. He said, Lot, tell you what. Choose for yourself. I'll give you the first bid, wherever you want to go. You know, love does not insist on having its own way, does not seek its own advancement. Reminds me of a story of women, a woman she broke up with, her boyfriend Jimmy. Broken up with Jimmy. Jimmy was getting on her nerves. She didn't like him no more. But several months after she broke, him up, broke up with him, she sent him a text message. Several months after. Said, Jimmy, I've been thinking about you lately. I can't get you off my mind. As a matter of fact, I don't know why I broke up with you. And I don't really think I can live without you anymore. So if you're open to reestablishing this relationship, let me know. Miss you. Maria. P.S. Congratulations on winning the lottery. That's self-centered. That's self-interest. And Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, Let nothing be done with selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for interest of others. And that's one of the hardest things for me as a pastor because we got so many of you. And you still have to kind of keep the interest of everybody. You see, a selfish heart loves for what it can get. A Christ-like heart loves what it can give. And in 1 Corinthians 10.24, Paul writes again, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Love never seeks its own. Love is always seeking somebody else. And I think this is like the most, the, the key concept of love for me because it describes selflessness. And if you're selfless, right, you'll be patient with people. If you're selfless, you'll be kind. You won't be jealous. You won't be angry. You won't be upset. You won't be provoked. You, you'll be tolerant. And you'll be generous, gracious. You won't be rude. All that means is you're selfless. And number eight, the last one we will look at today, is love is not provoked. If you look at verse 5, it says, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, does not provoke, thinks no evil. Love is not provoked means there's no sudden outburst. Love does not get upset, right? A lot of things we got to work on, patience, anger. Love never gets irritated. Love is never ready to fight. But wait a minute. I want to point this out. What about righteous indignation, right? If we were... You're cleansing the temp temple, be mad, go right ahead. I think uh, Martin Luther was a little angry when he uh, nailed his thesis to the church, 95 you know, things. Paul himself became angry when he saw idols of Athens. There's some things we should be angry about. In Acts 17, 16, it says, When Paul waited for them in Athens, for his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that city was given over to idols. I mean, you got to be mad at Satan. you got to be angry at him, the flesh, and so forth. And I believe that every Christian should be angry at those things. So I'm not depreciating the fact that Christians need little to get irritated. And there's plenty of things to get irritated about in our country these days. But love does not get angry with people. It doesn't get upset. It speaks of those sudden outbursts, irritations. 
Its idea of being provoked is referenced that something is being done to us directly. We love others. We do not get angry with them when they disturb us or things like that. And people who are provoked, people who are quick to anger, those are the people who are determined to have their own way. And this is a serious problem that faced in every church, in the church in Corinthian. They want their own way. They're selfish. They're never satisfied unless they're getting their way. This is a sign of lovelessness for anyone but themselves. They're always unhappy somehow, dissatisfied about, you know, our rights should be placed above others. But love is not easily angered. Remember we talked about it, it has a long fuse. It does not take easy offense. It's not quick-tempered. And Proverbs 14.29 says, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding. But he who is impulsive exalts folly. In 16.32, Proverbs says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who is taking city. So anger, this quick outburst, is opposite of love. Anger says... I matter so much that if you do anything to irritate me I don't like, you're going to get it. That's what it says. It's not easy to handle this, but I tell you, unless you're a Christian learns to handle it, you'll never really experience true love. You may tell your husband you love him, but what if you yell at him all the time? You think that's going to have an impact or your wife or your children? Love is the only cure for irritability, and last analysis is simply is just self-centeredness. In Psalm 37, 8, it says this, Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, it only causes harm. That's all it does, causes harm. It's not loving. Are we following the models of pattern of Christ's love? How are we doing in our comparison to all the things that Paul is pointing out to these things here? You may say, it's impossible. You know, one of the things you can do in this chapter is replace the love and put your name in it. Porne is patient. Fail. Porne is kind fail. I'm not talking about all the time. So we all would fail. But this is something that we should be aiming towards. And the Bible says God's love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You see, in Romans 5, 5, it says, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So it's simply saying, Lord, I'm not this way. I'm not always thinking best of every person. I'm not always mannerly, not always kind, but I want to change. And you see, when the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, this fruit will only come as a result abiding in Christ. So maybe you're having difficulty with some of these things because we're not abiding in Christ as we should. In Galatians 5, 25, 26 says, If we live in the Spirit, also walk in the Spirit. Let us not, be, not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So my hope, my prayer is that this church will be known as a loving church. And the reason is that is because, remember John 30, 13, 35? For this, people will know around us that you are my disciples if we love each other. You know, people may come up and say, I don't know about their preacher up there. I think Mike Tyson is a philosopher. He mispronounces words and things like that. But I tell you what, those people down there are grace. They love each other. And let us be said of us as a body. And let us be said of you as a person. And God help us be a loving church. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again this morning for ministering to us, to me again. And, Father, i got a long way to go with some of these things, and I want you to help me to be the man that you want me to be, treat my family, my wife, my friends, my world, my unsaved neighbors, 
the way they ought to be treated, the way Jesus would have treated them, totally out of love and selflessness. And I pray that all these dear people here today, I think for all of them who came this morning, meet their needs, Father. You see every heart in this special day. Only you can do it. And as we leave this place today, I ask that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.